It's Superman. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, this rocks. Hey. Morning, Father. Oh, this young man's oh. been under a bad oh. influence. Do you think you can help him? Every boy can be helped, Superman. I think you're right. Good luck, son. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that Superman mouthfucked time into forgetting. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time farm boy, Andrew Phillips. Oh no! And just in time for the release of Batman vs Superman, The Dawn of Justice League, the movie part 4, The Return of Jafar, we're taken to the skies in search of Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. A film so bad, you'll want to throw yourself from a horse. Oh, no. Is it too soon? Too soon? It I was think like, any time's too it soon. It was 20 years ago. Over 20 years ago. I'm st- it's staying in. It's staying in. <laughs> but before all that, first it's over to the trailer. The greatest hope against the threat of nuclear war is Superman. I'm going to do what our governments have been unwilling or unable to do. Effective immediately. I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. The greatest threat to Superman is Lex Luthor. Smarter than I thought. We can make the world safe for war profits. He's created the ultimate weapon to annihilate the Man of Steel. You'd risk worldwide nuclear war for your own personal financial gain. Nobody wants war. I just want to keep the threat alive. Dude of Steel, where are you gonna get it? You know you're a workaholic. Why don't you stop and smell the roses, huh? Superman 4, Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Jackie Cooper, John Cryer, with Mariel Hemingway and Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. Superman 4, his most important adventure, the quest for peace. Superman returns to battle the forces of evil in canon film Superman 4, the quest for substance. The unforgettable Christopher Reeves reprises his role as the titular hero in a film that is entirely undeserving of his talents. With the world on the brink of nuclear war, Superman makes a bid for peace at the UN headquarters, otherwise known as Milton Keynes Bus Station. With every country surrendering their weaponry, Lex Luthor capitalises on the plan by creating a nuclear-powered Superman clone imaginatively titled Nuclear Man. So begins the greatest battle ever fought on a Poundland budget. (laughs) Are we being harsh on this black sheep of the Superman family, or should Quest for Peace be forever banished to the Phantom Zone? Well, that's what we're here to find out. So with the release of Superman vs. Batman, The Dawn of Justice, that is its real title, guys, we knew we needed to review one of the lesser-remembered Superman or Batman films. In the end, we nominated The Quest for Peace for consideration because unlike Batman and Robin or Superman 3, this is a film that was seen by few. I'd say it's the least known of either franchise. Uh, Gareth, I've just got to um, just put in here and remind you, unfortunately, um, we don't have enough money to banish it to the Phantom Zone. Uh, we've just had to slash the budget on the Phantom oh, Zone no. sequence. So we're going to have to film it in... Um... Oldham. No, no, <laughs> we're going to have to shift the action to Stevenage. Okay. Can we say, like, 
We'll banish it to the netto zone. Oh, no, we haven't got enough money for Stevenage. We're going to have to um, refilm the whole sequence in Telford. (laughs) So, Andy, what experience, if any, do you have (laughs) with Superman 4, The Quest for Peace? Which I think we have to call it Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Yeah. Every single time. There's no shorten in it. The more we say it, actually, the quicker we say it. It sounds like we're saying The Quest for Piss. Yeah, (laughs) Quest for Piss. (laughs) Maybe that makes more sense. It's a more meaningful title. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's it's always been in my life because it's as old as we are. Well, definitely as old as I am because it's yeah. 1987. It's always been there, but I always knew that it was the bad one or yeah. the worst one. But even as a child, I knew it wasn't good, but I couldn't work out why, as you always do when you're a kid. But it wasn't like offensively bad for me at the time because it was just it was a Superman film. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're younger like that, you don't really have a proper gauge of quality. No, not at all. So it was only when I rewatched it recently. It was probably only about ten years ago, mm-hmm. and I'd gotten myself acquainted with the other Superman films properly. And uh, yeah, it's just shocking, but in a rather enjoyable way, but also in a fucking awfully boring way. It really uh, swings between being so bad it's good and just bad sequences where it's just so boring, even though it's such a short film. There's whole swathes of sequences in this film that go nowhere and do nothing. Mm -hmm. A lot of the talky scenes, I think, between Lois Lane and Superman and Warfield or whatever her name is. Oh, Lacey Warfield. Lacey Warfield. Yeah, a lot of those scenes are just dull. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the action is spectacularly bad and revel in it. Uh, the other thing I noticed as well when I watched it now, how much back and forth there is in terms of like how when they're in space, when they're on Earth, when they're averting some catastrophe, when they're in space, when they're on Earth, averting another catastrophe. Like the last sort of 40 minutes of the film is just back and forth between space and some other country yeah. and reverting. All the battles involving Superman and Nuclear Man are just so badly executed. But that's it. I think I like them because they're badly oh, executed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, have a lot of fun in ripping it to shreds. Yeah, but oh, God, yeah. It's such a huge mess. It is. Undeserving of anybody involved except Mr. Golan and Mr. Globus. (laughs) Uh, Everybody else, including the director and the stars and the writers and everybody involved in the production, is completely undeserving of the final result. Yeah, I'd say so as well. And everything rests on their shoulders. (laughs) Well, Superman 4 Quest for Peace is in fact a film that I've only become familiar with very recently. In fact, I watched it with you for the first time all the way through. Yeah. Only about a year ago, yeah. if that. And that we had quite afternoon. a lot of fun it watching fun it. Afternoon. It was, yeah. Before that, I had never really got as far as Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, when watching the Superman series. Because every time I get to Superman 3... I just lose all interest in that series of films altogether. Yeah. Superman 1 is fantastic. Superman 2 is great with some really silly moments. And then Superman 3 is such a decline in quality because it's got no touch of Richard Donner to it whatsoever Mm. that it always just zaps the fun out of it for me. By the end of Superman 3, I'm done. Normally, I don't even get to the end of Superman 3. I've seen Supergirl a couple of times as well. Yeah. (laughs) but um, And that's just awful as well. Yeah. Um, in a more laughable way also but i've never got as far as the quest for peace until a year ago i knew it had a reputation for being bad but i didn't know it was that bad and that incoherent Mm -hmm. and that flimsily tied together and also obviously not new york but we i guess we'll get into that in a moment (laughs) but uh, yeah it's obviously not anything yeah (laughs) like any of the stuff is obviously not what they're trying to do yeah it's interesting to note as well that even though superman 3 is a massive drop-off in quality overall that 
Superman 3 and Supergirl are both still technically competent films. They still look reasonably good yeah. and have reasonably good production values. It's just in the um, the performances and the story and the general direction where it goes wrong. Yeah. Technically, they're still as good as the other Superman yeah, films. Yeah, you can still Give see a man flying. Yeah. Um, whereas... Superman 4 The Quest for Peace really just fails in that regard as yeah, well. Yeah, it, it fails on every level. In the very thing that they mastered in a first Superman film, they fail at yeah. in this one, fundamentally. I think the thing that always struck me, even when I was little watching it, I couldn't quite buy the fact that it was made in 1987. Yeah. It felt so much older just because of the dodgy effects. I mean, there were other films that I saw from that period that were made around that time Mm -hmm. that I can't even imagine how bad it must have felt to have viewed this film at the time because it bore no relationship to anything else that was coming out of that time outside of the canon group. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm just, I'm amazed by that as well because I've only just made the connection that really this film was made within my lifetime. Yeah. Because although I've wrote in my notes that the film was made and released in 1987, I didn't really, you know, connect with that. Sometimes it's just a number that you throw down. It's when you put it into lifetime terms. It's like, Jesus, I was alive when this film came out. This looks like something that should have been released in the 70s. Yeah, if you think that Jurassic Park was only five and a half years away and Terminator 2 even exactly. closer than that. There's no reason for it to look this bad. No. And be this bad. It's Superman, after all. Yeah, and there's so many, like, shoddy opticals and weird miniatures and things. I mean, there are a couple of nice things in there. There's a couple of good model shots, but they're just, they're obviously, that's what they were probably doing at the start of production mm-hmm. and then everything else has tailed off. But Are you um, referring to the stockpile of nuclear weapons? No, no. There's a couple of good shots where the actual missiles are launched. Yes. And the space station at the beginning. At the very beginning, yeah. That's the most competent looking part of yeah. the film, I would say. But after that, everything yeah. else just goes to part, really. Yeah, because this film does begin with a nice little gravity nod. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say gravity and a Poundland budget. Yeah. That's basically what There's it is. There's actually a trailer that i saw that edited both this film and gravity (laughs) together so it looked like superman was saving them sandra bullock and george clooney and co it was very well put together it looked great i'm just envisioning somebody now listening to this some studio head going (gasps) superman gravity (laughs) spinoff it's the film that everybody's been dying to see yeah but yeah that's probably that whole russian sequence at the start is probably the most competent part of the whole film yeah that was probably filmed first before the budget was cut yeah but yeah it just amazes me how technically incompetent this film is given the time that it was made in yeah it must have been crushingly crushingly disappointed for everybody involved most of all christopher reeve himself and he must have been so disappointed well this is really a passion project for christopher reeve because he's the one that came up with the story yeah and the idea of making a superman film around the nuclear missile crisis i guess that was going on at the time the idea that nuclear weapons were stockpiling up Mm. i guess it's just on the tail end of that old cold war era and they wanted to make a film that approached that it was part of the deal as well of getting him back to play this role because obviously at this point the rights had been bought by canon group yeah it was part of his deal that he had some hand in the story so yeah it was his baby and initially anyway i think Mm -hmm. at the scripting stage yeah anything afterwards was completely out of his hands so you almost like watched it fall apart in front of him although there is a story where apparently tom mankowitz one of the original writers for the superman or the original consultants for the superman series for superman one and two Mm -hmm. who was friends with donna apparently christopher reeve phoned him up and asked him what he thought of the story that he'd come up with for Superman 4. He was saying basically it's not a good idea for Superman to deal with such a subject matter that we can't change. It was too big a 
an idea for Superman to be involved in mm-hmm. and make okay overnight. It was too flimsy a concept, really, for Superman just to make okay. I suppose they made that the crux of the story, though, because Superman fails at what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to bring the world peace. In fact, he causes a great amount of destruction. Yeah. Not directly, but indirectly. And it ends with him saying... We're that not this- talking Man of Steel here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. But it ends with him really failing in his task and pretty much acknowledging that he can't change humanity's tendency to destroy itself. Only we can change that as a group. Not one person can change it. And I suppose there's something in that story, but I do think it does diminish Superman as a being somewhat. But I also like visions of Superman that paint him as being fallible and being more human, taking on more human traits. It adds a couple of flaws to his otherwise yeah. perfect form. I like the idea that because he's so powerful, he thinks he can fix everything and then realizes later that he can't. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to, but I really want to listen to the commentary by the, one of the writers, Mark Rosenthal, because I, felt, I have a funny feeling that the original script for this probably wasn't half bad. Yeah. And whatever's happened has been budgeted out or messed around with by Goward and Globus yeah. over the course of the production of the film. It's the old adage that you can make a bad script into a good film and a good script into a bad film through lots of different reasons. But um, there is something amiable in that story, something that could have worked, but unfortunately this film isn't that. You can tell in certain ways that they are trying to get back to the slightly more serious Superman films of Superman 1 and 2. The tone of the film does feel slightly more in line with Superman 1 and 2 than Superman 3 is, where they're just playing it for laughs. There are a couple of real big slips where, like, for example, we'll talk about later, which is the John Cryer character. That's definitely more out of Superman 3 land. But on the whole, the kind of tone that they're going for, what they're striving for, at least, not succeeding, but is going back to that sort of more classic Superman feel. But everything's just been budgeted or edited out or messed around with. There's some nice things that they reintroduced, which the main one for me, although it's not explored very well, because I know they really even lost this part of it, even in the original Superman films, the idea that Lex Luthor is a mad scientist rather than a corporate man because i know in the original comic books he started off as the mad scientist and then he he changed over time i think actually in the 60s and 70s they changed his character to be more of a corporate business man yeah in fact it's something that the new batman vs superman film seems to be getting back to because we see lex luther wearing a lab coat in a few shots in the trailer harkening back to lex luther's original origins of being a mad scientist yeah they seem to the new lex luther they seem to be making more of a hybrid between the two yeah like this kind of Boy Mark, genius. Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. Facebook genius, but scientist as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And even the fact that they even cast Jesse Eisenberg kind of... Doing his best Max Landis impression. Yeah. <laughs> but I like the idea that they've tried to make him less the capitalist guy, but more just the mad scientist that just wants yeah. to experiment and do crazy schemes. Yeah, because we do see him doing actual science shit in yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I use that word like, I'm doing science! Science! And even just trying to bring it a little bit more back into the mythology, again, not executed particularly well. They're at least striving for something. There Mm -hmm. are actually more attempts at trying to make a genuine Superman film with this film than the last one. The last one became a Richard Pryor vehicle rather than a Superman film. Yeah. Just because Richard Pryor wanted to be in a Superman film. Oh, he did an interview yeah. with someone. I can't remember whom it was. Was it like Johnny Carson it or was, something it was, like that? It was. It was like a Johnny Carson interview in which he detailed how he'd been to see Superman and pretty much acted it out entirely. And they just decided, yeah, let's get him in a Superman film. And they just made a Superman film about him being a hacker. 
It's bizarre. I imagine he was coked up to the girls. Because I know that I wrote, that film originally started out much more in line with the other two. Yeah. And was mainly about Brainiac, which is what that character ended up turning into, the Richard Pryor character. Mm-hmm. And there was something else as well. It was like some leprechaun <laughs> creature thing. I can't remember what it's called now, but there was like... Oh, my God. I want to see that. There was a lot more of the actual comics in the premise, yeah. in the scenario for Superman 3, as they originally had it. But it's probably interesting to talk about those last two Sal Kind films anyway, because it well, leads directly into this anyway. Let us start talking about the context. Let's uh, really paint a picture of the history of Superman for the quest for peace. Because, <laughs> like I say, the we quest need... For piss. The quest for piss. Yeah. <laughs> we really need to know where a film has come from before we can understand what happened to it and where it went. So, I guess to tell the story of Superman for the quest for piss, we need to go as far back as Richard Donner's Superman and the Sal Kinds yes. as producers. Because I think it is actually with the fall of Richard Donner's reign as the Superman director, that is where the seeds were sown that eventually led to the quest for peace. Or the quiz for piss. The quiche for piss. The quiche for piss, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, in order to understand how Superman for the quiche for piss started, I mean, the whole idea of them making these first two Superman films back-to-back at the time was a novel one and a brave one and... It's only a testament to the Salkans that had even got it made. But at the same time, their bullheadedness, mm-hmm. uh, their style of producing basically worked against them in the end because they ended up firing the person that was responsible for making it all work. Yeah, they essentially took the person that did everything right against all the odds and made a film that everybody loved and was a massive hit and then did not reward him for it whatsoever. And the thing that baffled me is that they fired him after they knew that it was a hit. Yeah, exactly. And it was more of a, just a personal vindictive thing rather than anything actually practical. And it's very saddening because when you watch the documentary on the Blu-rays, Richard Donner speaks of the Superman films, or at least the first Superman film, he says that with that crew and with that cast, he was envisioning making Superman films forever. That's all he wanted to make. He was saying, mm. I had thoughts for Superman 2, obviously, 3, 4, even 5. Mm. He said, I just wanted to make films with this group of people. I imagine that would have changed as time went on, and it would have gone off to do other things. But, but he would have had a good run. He would have had a great run. And instead, because of the Salkins' vendetta that they had against Richard Donner, they threw him to the gutter and very rapidly declined with the series. It was a nosedive almost in terms of the drop in quality between films. Even though it's still a fairly good film, I mean, the the Richard Lester version of Superman 2 is still a noticeable drop in quality, even down to when it first starts, even the fact that the titles themselves don't look as good. No, they don't, no. Because the titles in the first film are great, and the titles in the second film, they are a little bit more like the ones in Superman 4, the quiche for piss and yeah they're just a little bit naff the ones in the quiche for piss though look far worse oh yeah that i'm talking about the decline starts here in superman 2 it does people always thought superman 2 yeah that's the best superman film but it's, it's not really that still belongs to superman 1 but all the bits that people liked about superman 2 were generally most of the richard donner sections yeah. of the film and any of the really weird dodgy bits which are all the um goofy battles and the whole sequence in paris all that kind of stuff. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, the Eiffel Tower sequence, which isn't in the Donnacut at all, they all emanate from the Richard Lester, who was their yes man. Yeah. And a lot of the Zod battle in the city as well, when we get a lot of goofy shit like the guy on the rollerblades being blown down the yeah. road. It's like any time there's a goofy moment like that, it's Richard Lester. It's the guy who directed Hard Day's Night and The Three Musketeers. Yeah. That was his forte, though. That's what he was brought on to do, to bring a touch of comedy to it. 
And he did. I mean, Richard Lester as a director probably succeeded in what he was told to do. Yeah. But it was the wrong direction, in my opinion. Although I do know there was a a massive drop in quality in the quality of the actual direction. I mean, there's a really great podcast on... um, how did this get made where they interview Jack O'Halloran yeah. about his experiences on Superman and he said he noticed a massive change in tone change in competency mm-hmm. when Richard Lester was brought on board to do the reshoots on Superman but 2 nobody, nobody wanted to come back for no. Richard Lester nobody no. Margot Kidder didn't whatsoever no and you can kind of tell they didn't want to do it for anybody but Richard Donner well Gene Hatman didn't come back at all so. yeah exactly so they had to kind of work their way around him yeah and it shows it yeah. shows and uh, in that way i think perhaps they haven't given richard lester the time of day because let's face it he is the guy that's coming in and taking the reins what i'm saying is i don't think that film is particularly stands as an example of him as a bad director superman 3 on the other hand yeah i think it's more of a case where you get a director who's just miscast for a certain job yeah that's what i was trying to get at is he's just not suited for it is his sensibilities and his style and what he does as a director is not suited for that film because like we said he's a comedy director Mm. And he was brought on to come up with these comedy scenes. He did it. It doesn't work, mm. but he succeeded in what he was tasked to do. But then he comes back for Superman 3. And one of the things that I've actually read about the direction of Superman 3 is that he was kind of dwarfed by the project when it actually came to directing because it was too big of a task for him. And that's why it's so chaotic and so yeah. all over the place is because he just lost the reins. He was essentially the yes man yeah. that the studio really wanted. Because it's clear that the Sulkins wanted to make these movies, really. And they already had it set in their head and what these movies should be. Richard Donner comes in and Richard Donner makes a Richard Donner movie. Yeah. Lester comes across. He had no imprint on the film whatsoever. He was just there to nod his head and go, okay, sir, I'll do that. Yeah, because I, I do know that the original script that was the Newman draft of mm-hmm. Superman the movie was much more jokey and comedic. And yeah, it was when Donna came on board, that all changed. Yeah. So again, Richard Donna really was responsible with his kind of entourage of people that he brought on. But that whole group was responsible for making the first Superman movie a success. Mm-hmm. And then when that all fell by the wayside, they brought the old people back in again. Because I know yeah. The, yeah, the Newmans wrote Superman 3. And again, they just got the tone all wrong for it. It doesn't make any sense, does it? No. Because they've essentially had this guy, Richard Donner's, come in, made a film that succeeds in every way, critically, financially. It's a great film. People love it. And you've got the Sulkins at the top, the producers of it, that are still begrudging the fact that it's done well almost because they wanted their version. And because it's not their version that's doing well, it's almost like they're jealous. I feel like it would have almost benefited them if Richard Donner Superman would have come out and been a failure. You can always tell how bullish they are on the documentaries as well because they always attribute the failure of the other movies to other reasons. Yeah. To other things. Other things were at play. Like, yeah, people just were just bored of Superman by this yeah. stage. So that's why it failed. Not by any other reason. But why were people bored? That's why I asked. Because of the quality. L- let's face it, we've had more Marvel films over a similar period of time, maybe longer, mm. since t- yeah, 2009. We've had more Marvel films and people are still going to go see them. Mm. I mean, I- I'm bored by a few, but audiences are still going back in the droves. So that's proved that if something's a consistent level of quality, yeah. then people will continue to go back to it. So let's take that to Superman. Why yeah. were people bored? Because the films weren't good anymore. Their drop-off was too steep. It wasn't just like blips. It was a steep curvature. Yeah. And it was because of them. Sorry, I sound like I'm genuinely angry. <laughs> well, it does get you annoyed when you see how um, through just clashes of personality that a whole film series can just go to pot and go so wrong. 
I don't think there really is an example of a series that was envisioned as a series that's gone so wrong after you fire that leading guy. Because most films, they make one film, then they consider a sequel, and the sequel may be as good, but usually not as good. This was conceived from the start as a series, and obviously the first film was made in two parts. It had the potential to be consistent, but for all those reasons, they made it inconsistent in the worst way possible. Well, that's it. Marvel has proven that you don't have to knock it out of the park every time. It's just if you maintain a consistent level of quality, people will keep going back. Yeah, so yeah, there was a massive drop-off in Superman 3, and then they decided, oh, people have bought a Superman. We'll we'll turn to another superhero. We'll do Supergirl. Yes. That didn't work either for even worse reasons. Because that film doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and it's the. I probably... don't think it actually has a story, though, does it? It's more so like everyday life of this. Basically, but it's like two separate stories melded together. That has the first story starts, and then is interrupted by the second story, and then the the first story sort of comes in towards the end again. Yeah, but it's probably the one of the most sexist films I've ever seen. Oh, incredibly so. Just in terms of how it's obviously been written by men. Yeah, and men with quite an old world viewpoint writing about women. You can tell it's from an old person's perspective, an yeah. old mass perspective the salkans yeah perspective, exactly because that's if you have seen what they look you know how they speak what they look like you can totally tell what kind of a person they are yeah and what kind of traditional views they have yeah and what kind of understanding yeah of the opposite sex they but have. the uh the best one when you watch the little cinematic saga documentary is about janet swartz trying to justify why people didn't like it the fact that it was different and i was like no janet that's not what the, <laughs> that's not what the reason was yeah but um the guy that made the best jaws sequel that's his claim to fame <laughs> they actually all jump ship after that and end up making santa claus the movie oh that together, classic which is also two films in one i think we've got to save that for our christmas special yeah. or something i'd yeah. love to do santa claus the christmas all over <laughs> the world now yeah and that, that's another film that as a human in space with no um oh yeah of course no it reasons. does with no, jo- no way jo- to survive <laughs> Yeah. John Lithgow can fly in space. Yeah, so from that point then, going back to Superman, yeah. the rights were actually bought up by the Canon Film Group because uh, yeah, the rights went up for sale and Canon bought them and they were in the midst of just buying everything at the yeah, time. Yeah, they, they were buying a lot of superhero and comic. They, were doing, they bought He-Man, Spider-Man, yep. Captain America, which is another story entirely because that yep. kind of was a Canon film but not. It's a semi It's, it's an associated film. film. Yeah. Yeah, and Superman. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they were literally buying anything outright. Well, they had an almost almost like conveyor belt type way of making films in that they would just come off the company line almost yeah they at one point on the documentary electric boogaloo which anybody should go and watch because it just gives you an insight into how this little production company that was interested in making really schlocky almost semi-pornographic films (laughs) got into the business of making action films and have gone on to be quite influential when you consider some of the action films that are being made today but they were in the process of just buying everything. And they were in some financial difficulties at the time. Uh, at one point, someone mentioned that they were making around 60 to 80 films a year. I don't think that number's right. No. But they do say like it just kept on going up. The number of films that they were doing yeah. per year kept increasing and increasing. And it was this method of filmmaking that they had. It was that if they slowed down, they would stop and fail. So yeah. the money always had to be moving forward. And as they move forward and as they continue to make more and more types of films, more failed and the purse strings got tighter and the money slowly dissipated. Yeah. Watching that documentary, I do appreciate the Canon Films method of filmmaking and that all the money all of the time went into the film. Mm. And it's almost like a grassroots level filmmaking was that people brought their own packed lunches 
to business meetings and they would sit in the office and eat the lunches while they were talking about a film rather than taking a car out to a local restaurant where yeah. you can all sit around in their big suits and talk about where the film's going for 10 minutes. Yeah. They wanted to be making films all of the time. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, let's do all this shit on the cheapest we can and just put all the money into making films. Mm. And that's how they did it all of the time. And too few studios understand that now. Yeah. Have that work ethic. I mean, this film's shit. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, most of the films but, they made were shit. But yeah, yeah, they the, were. the intention was that. I mean, there was probably some more dodgy stuff going on as well. But Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of I like that sentiment. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I do know that there were 31 other films in production around the time of Superman 4. Yeah. Actual production. So yeah, the figure of 80 might not be accurate, but yeah, it's probably more around that 30 yeah. level because even 30 films in production at once is a I lot. I think on the documentary he says 82. And I was like, that can't be right. If that's right, that's fucking bonkers. I think it's more closer to 32, but yeah. when you consider how many films a year studios put out now, which is about between 9 and 14 tops. Other big films, yeah, normally it's the rest of them films that have been picked up along the way. Yeah, but yeah, I know even Paramount's slate now for actual theatrically released films is quite short. It's only about nine films a year or something like that. So yeah. when you think even a studio like Paramount is only doing that amount of films and Canon Group at the time we're doing 32 films in the same year <laughs> and there's some real curiosities in that 80s bunch as well you've got some real stinkers like your, your Death Wish series yeah anything from Death Wish 2 onwards Death Wish the first one actually apparently that's the legitimate film and then Canon bought up the rights to it yeah and then just payrolled Michael Winner to yeah. make, just continue making them forever yeah Michael Winner in the doc is painted not to be the best of directors just in terms of the way that he thinks and not the nicest of people no they never got that impression as being smutty you get the sense in some interviews that he's really saying oh no this is the real world that we live in but when you actually see death wish it's just a lot of rape and a lot of violence and a lot of the old republican types getting it against those youths yeah and people who are of different ethnicities but (laughs) they do say that he actually um kept saying oh no it's justified by what his vision is and stuff but they realized that he was just getting off on it like he really liked shooting a rape scene mm. because it just meant more tits yeah because i know is marina certis on it that? is yeah, yeah, yeah she, she talk, has a lot to say about michael Winner. she does she doesn't like him whatsoever no. she describes him as being very smutty yeah. and really creepy and you get that sense of it watching any of his films yeah well he's dead now <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't have to bother anyone anymore <laughs> but yeah you've got some stuff like that Mixed with the odd one-off classic a la Runaway Train. And, that, that's um, a legitimate classic. Then you've got not masterpieces, but just really fun films like Life Force. Life Force is one of my favourite films ever. I think at the same time that there was some sort of level of overconfidence and lack of experience there because... The main thing I picked up on the Cinematic Saga documentary that they'd bought it thinking, we'll make a really good Superman film, not knowing the kind of work that it needs to make a good mm-hmm. looking Superman film or the kind of resources that you need. Yeah. And they were just going headlong into it, not really doing the research. It was only later when they slashed the budget in half, mm-hmm. like literally in half, because this is a film that was originally budgeted for $36 million. And then they, just weeks before filming, slashed the budget to $17 million. Yeah. Well, they were actually fighting bankruptcy at this point. Yeah. And so rather than actually rein in the purse strings, which they did with this film, they decided to actually start spending more on bigger names. And they thought that over the top the arm wrestling film with Sylvester Stallone was going to make more money than Superman The Quest for Peace. And I think Sylvester Stallone was paid $20 million just as his fee to do over the top. So 
I think that's how Superman, the quiche for piss, suffered. It's odd, isn't it, really, that they would have bought it and then just immediately sort of neglected it. Yeah. Even though it's like probably their biggest film Mm -hmm. in terms of an actual property that they would have bought. It seems so weird that they would have just relinquished any kind of real resources behind it because they could have really brought it back. Because at this point, we're really only dealing with them having one dodgy Superman film because you can completely disregard Supergirl. Yeah, it's so unrelated to... I mean, the only cast member that reprises his role is Mark McClure in that film so you can completely discount it so at this point in the timeline you've only really got one dodgy superman film and the other two are good so in terms of commercial standing it's still probably a pretty good place to be and yeah. the fact that they just throw it away like that is is crazy utterly so and like I say i think it was a wrong decision to actually take money out of this film for whatever reason it was and for wherever that mm. money went because well it's superman yeah it's a proven money maker yeah even superman 3 despite its faults and despite making lesser than the previous films made money Mm. i mean do you blame canon group for the film that was eventually made with the quiche for peace (sighs) i would say the thing is they were doing exactly what canon films do i think the book always has to go back to the soul kinds yeah because this is a canon film these are what canon films look like these are the problems that canon films have it's just a property that they should have never let go of and let it get into that state yeah exactly it's one of those things where they just didn't understand what made it good and why people liked it in the first place yeah they just thought throw loads of money at it get our yes people in make it on time on budget there you are and then they're like oh why do people not like this film people must be tired of superman now so we'll stop making those we'll sell it that just seems to be their whole reasoning behind yeah. everything. I kind of had got the impression that Ilya Salkind and P.S. Spengler, they had aspirations to be directors themselves. So I think that was one of the main reasons why it was micromanaged so much. It kind of felt to me that Alexander Salkind was a lot more hands-off yeah. and was functioned more as a proper producer or the money man yeah. than just the general overseer. But it felt like the other two, because they were young and they were more hot-headed yeah. uh, and they had a more bullish personality... They were trying to just control everything, which is why it, I think it ultimately failed. They wanted to be the auteurs behind the piece. They wanted to be the driving force. They wanted to yeah. be directors. When they really weren't equipped for it. No. No. And their ideas have proven to be what's the downfall of this series. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. The series has never found its feet again. No. Richard Donner's first film, Superman the Movie, has been the height of the series since it came out. And yeah, this latest iteration of Superman, it still hasn't found its feet. And I don't think it's likely to under this creative No, because they're not giving it the chance to find its feet as a series. Because although there were problems with Man of Steel, and I do think it suffers from being a rather flawed Superman film... I still think it's an okay film. Mm. There's potential in there. Mm. And I was looking forward to where they could go with it and how it could improve. But instead, they've just decided to undercut it completely because by adding Batman to the series, the studio have no faith in Superman as a character Mm. and that audiences care for Superman anymore. And that just tells me that they don't understand how Superman works. There is merit in that film, but I feel that they went too far in a direction of trying to make it totally fit in with Christopher Nolan's Batman. Yeah. When Superman isn't that kind of character, you lost so much. I have no idea how they're going to do the Clark Kent stuff in this new film because that whole part of the characters doesn't seem to fit in with any of the stuff they're doing. And it didn't seem to work even the brief bit that we saw in Man of Steel. Because the thing is, that the, the funny thing with Superman Returns, It tries so hard to be a Richard Donner film, but forgets to add the fun. I admire the approach, and I admire Brian Singer's intentions, but it's just not an enjoyable film to watch. 
and it's remarkably dull at the end oh, of the yeah. day. There's just a lot of times where nothing's happening, and there's no music, and I have nothing invested with what's on the screen here. Yeah. What, what's this character doing? There's no chemistry between the two leading actors. I mean, the I mean, I have no real bad things to say about Brandon Routh. It's just yeah. that he had nothing to say. He literally has hardly any dialogue in the film, especially as Clark Kent, and uh, there's no chemistry between him and Kate Bosworth. She's completely miscast as Lois Lane. Utterly so. Because I would say that's something that Man of Steel did right, even though the character is written wrong, is that Amy Adams is a much better Lois Lane. She's Perfect. a much better fit. Yeah. Unfortunately, her character was so underwritten. Yeah, but going back to Superman Returns as well, I agree. I think the thing with that film is it's sexless. It's got no bite. And it's cold. Yeah. It's and, really cold. And given how much they tried to make it fit in with Richard Donner's version of Superman, it doesn't feel at all a part of those that mm-hmm. series because it's just lost all those warm elements. Yeah. There's so much to be said about the casting of Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder in those two roles. Their chemistry together, they're a large part of what makes Superman the movie and Superman 2 Completely. work. Yeah. I think... Brian Singer got some of the grander elements right, mm-hmm. but then in terms of the nitty gritty, in terms of the character stuff, just completely off the mark. And also, that film just suffers from having its major set piece in the first forty minutes, and there's nothing of else. Course to, there's, yeah, there's to, nothing to, that comes next. No, it never reaches that height again. It needed a bit of scope. Instead, all of the action takes place so far away, it doesn't matter. Yeah. When I say sexless, by the way, when I'm talking about Superman, I don't mean that we really need some hardcore penetrative sex, like Lars von Trier style. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What I mean is, there's just no spark between them. There's no No, chemistry. nothing. Because when you see these characters in Richard Donner's Superman film, you get a sense that there's some genuine affection and some genuine attraction between Superman and Lois Lane. And all of that is completely lost in Superman Returns. Mm. Going back to Superman 4, the quiche with peas. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's funny how they do slightly get back to that chemistry, but there's so many things in the way that it makes a lot of that just redundant, yeah. really. Because I said there are a couple of positives you can draw out of this film. It's not completely a negative viewing experience. It's just that a lot of the things that they try and do positively just end up coming out as fluff because they don't go anywhere. And they're completely irrelevant. Well, this is a good point to actually say, now we are going to begin talking about Superman 4, The Quantum of Solace. (laughs) The Quantum of Solace. (laughs) (laughs) So, Andy, what did you think of Superman 4, The Quichewood Peas? Um, I can't quite describe it. The the experience of watching this film, it's just... um, It's kind of unlike any other viewing experience, because when you're dealing with bad movies, they usually come from a bad place, or they've started off bad. So when you're dealing with a bad film that's come from a great start, it's baffling how far it's fallen. Like yeah. It looks so amateurish and uh, just so ill thought out. I don't think there's another film really to compare it to apart from if you compare, say, Jaws with Jaws the Revenge. That's the And it's quite funny, in fact, that unfortunately, the year of my birth, 1987, both these films came out in that year. <laughs> so It brought us you, these classics. Yeah, I mean, that must have been a really bad year. That's got year to be like film. an omen or something. Yeah, like, these classic properties. The these, of films. It's weird that these classic 70s properties were brought down to such a low level in the yeah. late 80s. I think it's also a testament to show how far we've come in terms of franchise building. Yeah, I agree, because back then, sequels weren't really greeted as fondly. I think the 80s was the beginning of a turning point and the end of an era for another set of films. Yeah. I think with Star Wars and its sequels, it became more acceptable to make sequels on a big budget level. I think Lucasfilm as a company is actually either to thank or to blame, depending on your point of view, for franchises, because obviously they had Star Wars, but they also had Indiana Indiana Jones. Jones. 
But yeah, it's just baffling to see how something can just go so awry. Well, I think when we look at those two franchises, when we look at Jaws and when we look at Superman, we see an old way of thinking when it comes to the approach to franchises, which is each film is given decreasing amounts of money and resources and time. Whereas now it's the complete opposite of that. You pump less money into your first film, and then as you go through the series, you just keep putting more and more money in it because it has to be bigger. Yeah. It always has to be bigger. More, but bigger, bigger, bigger. Until you've got nowhere else to go. Which exactly. Is, they're, 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 yourself into a corner. Basically, they're now the opposite. Sequels are now the opposite to what they were in the past, but they're probably in no better situation, actually. No. It's... no, no, no. It's just swapping one evil for another. But having said that, this film is still baffling because it's so bad on every single level like i said there's little glimmers of positive steps forward yeah but they're so lost we've tried to approach it as being a positive experience yeah, yeah. and i think we've ran out of things to say yeah at the end of the day it's still hilariously fun to watch because it's so bad especially if you're from in and around the milton Keynes area <laughs> i imagine a lot of this was filmed on your doorstep <laughs> i mean i used to live in bedford uh, so I used to visit Milton Keynes a lot and I used to go from Milton Keynes train station when I was travelling up to Manchester. So I spent a long time in the locations that uh, <laughs> Superman, uh, the quiche with peas, used. Did they have any plaques up on the wall? I'd imagine they just want people to forget that it was ever made there. I think that's the other fascinating thing. I mean, they cut the budget for this film. I mean, it's notable that obviously they cut the effects budget, which is really apparent. But the really baffling thing is that because of the budget cuts, they change where they were shooting the locations but chose a location that was probably the most unsuitable location for filming a metropolis slash new york style of environ <laughs> i don't even know then you can the, even think of i don't even know what the thought process was that led them to walk into milton Keynes and go oh this will do there are definitely places in and around england that look more like new york yeah i mean we live in one of them manchester our hometown has been used for plenty of Hollywood productions as a stand-in for New York. Oh, it yeah. was in Captain America, the first one. It was in Alfie. Yeah. That was another film that turned up. I'm sure it's turned up in another one that I'm forgetting at the moment. Oh, yeah. Between Manchester and Liverpool, you've got Inner City New York and The Docks. Yeah. Perfect stand-in. Oh, uh, Batman. Oh, of course, yeah. Both Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, but The Dark Knight Rises didn't film here. No. They still filmed in Bedford, didn't they? They did, yeah. Because that's where Carlington Airship's buildings are. So it's all connected in the great circle of life. But that's the thing, I mean, there's lots of films that do use those locations, even though they're nowhere near where they're meant to be, they use them well. It fools you, unless you really know where the places are, it fools you into believing that that's the actual place. This just fails in every way no. to convey that they were actually in New York. They it's, think it's, by just putting up one American fire hydrant, that'll transform Milton Keynes bus station into the UN actually, headquarters. the main film I can think of, and we watched it quite recently as well, and I did compare it to... I know what you're going to say. ...is the John Moore remake the of Omen. The Omen, yeah. which it tries to be in London by having the London Eye in the background of every shot, and a, <laughs> and a London Underground sign or a, a London Street sign, but it's so obviously Prague. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I I went to Prague shortly after we watched the film and I was walking down the streets like, oh shit, this is from The Omen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's the church from The Omen. And the fact that that's a film that was made almost 20 years later. Yeah, exactly. And they learnt no lessons from this film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, John Moore, he would have fit right in with the canon mm -hmm. group, I think, back then. But um, Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it's just so comical. I mean, even if you don't know Milton Keynes is a place, if you're yeah. not from Britain or you've never visited Milton Keynes, it's plainly obvious that we're not in New York. It's fascinating in its own right how much it doesn't marry up, how mm-hmm. certain things are made to look like New York and other things aren't. I mean, at the end of the day, if you really had to film in Milton Keynes, the better idea would have just been to decide, right, we're going to set it in a different place. Yeah. It's going to be set in a different place work the story around the location rather than trying to pass it off as something. If you didn't have the money to make it look like New York, they could have don't actually have saved money. York. They yeah. could have actually saved money by making it more about where it was actually yeah. where they were actually filming. Because not that Milton Keynes isn't isn't a visually interesting place. In fact, it's probably one of the most visually distinctive towns in the whole of the UK because it looks so fucking weird. The only thing I can think of is that the reason why they chose Milton Keynes is that it's very near the motorway from London. And you do see the motorway in a couple of the shots at the Kent Farm. And it's got good access. <laughs> <laughs> so, because obviously there's so many roads mm-hmm. and it literally is a grid system. So if you're American or familiar with American, you can't get lost in that. Well, we need to think about actually the way in which Canon films make their films. And it's that there is very little time for pre-production. Even films like this, which are the big budget tentpoles, supposed to be at least, there is a very short time for actual pre-production. They want to be filming, in some cases, just a couple of weeks after they've came up with the idea. Wow. Um, I remember on the documentary, at one point, one of the writers was saying that he came up with an idea for a film with them in a conversation. And within three weeks, they were filming. Wow. That's just so utterly bonkers. And it kind of explains why some of their films are the way (laughs) they are, you know. But that was their way of filmmaking. They had to be making films all the time or the money would catch up with them. And it did eventually. So just to go through, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're not familiar with Milton Keynes because you'll probably get the association. So just so you know, guys, this episode is not sponsored by Milton Keynes Council. (laughs) (laughs) So the area where Superman flies in just before they go to the UN building, all those sections, that is Milton Keynes Central Station. So it basically acts as a bus station slash railway station. It's basically a big square, and that's where they have that whole sequence. And literally, all it is is just supplemented by one New York cop on horseback, a uh, fire hydrant, (laughs) and a guy selling hot dogs. And that's literally it. Considering that it's the UN as well, there's very few people actually outside whatsoever. And the crowd shot that they have, it's more like just homeless people that they manage to get together at the last minute. Or just people that just come off the train, (laughs) I think. Like, have you got time to kill? you got to wait for your mum and dad to pick you up? We'll uh, just be in this film for this shot then. That's pretty much what happened. But, I mean, they used about three main locations in this film. There's another, I think it's called Avebury House, which doubled as the hotel, yeah. interior of the Daily Planet, and the gym, mm-hmm. all in one. So that's basically, that's one location. And the last main location was a place called Winter Gardens, which doubled for the Metropolis Museum Gallery, yeah. where they steal Superman's I block of hair. I have to talk about this scene, actually, while we're on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Because it does play on an idea that has been used in the Superman comics quite often which is Superman coming across and doing battle with a clone of himself in some way. Mm. We'd already seen it almost in Superman 3, in which he literally battled an evil version of himself. But this time, Lex Luthor uses a strand of Superman's hair to take his DNA and create a nuclear-powered clone. 
even the new Batman vs Superman film is playing about with that idea, whereas Doomsday is a clone of General Zod, it looks like. Um, spoilers for Batman vs Superman. I don't think we can really spoil anything about yeah, that Yeah, it's all in the trailer, guys. You know it is. So, this is something, again, it's not unfamiliar to the series. It's a staple of the series that a piece of Superman comes up against himself. However, the actual stealing of this piece of hair, the actual obtaining of his DNA, is executed in such a profoundly dull way... <laughs> Rather than there being some kind of caper or heist for Superman's hair, they instead just break into a museum and steal it. They literally just like, smash the glass. They just smash a glass case in. They somehow manage to cut it, despite the fact it's holding up like a thousand pounds of something stupid. Yeah. And they still just manage to just cut it with some garden shears. Yeah. <laughs> or bolt cutters or whatever it is. And take it. How were they even able to cut through it? I don't think those are questions that we should really be asking <laughs> about this film. But it could have been fun. Also, that piece of hair is really fucking long. Yeah. Because he's got short hair on his head. Which makes me believe that that's a pube. Yeah. It's just a very long pube. Maybe they just were just being polite and saying <laughs> yeah. this is the lock of Superman's hair. You think it's like looking at Cousin It with a big nose? Oh. Like a Sesame Street nose. <laughs> Only Lois Lane will know. Yes. And that's really the extent of most of the Milton Keynes locations. I mean, there's other places. I mean, the Kent Farm is some farm in the heart of Hertfordshire. That's the only bit I think that they actually get away with looking somewhat like the Kent farm in the other Superman films. And the only thing that really gives it away is the weather. Yeah. Because most of this film is cloudy, it's overcast, and England is overcast a hell of a lot. So the weather does give it away. (laughs) But yeah, that's the only scene I think they got away with shooting over here. Yeah, they didn't get away with much else. Um, No. I actually like that scene as well. I think the scene on Kent Farm worked. Oh, yeah. Whereas, you know why I like that scene? It's because it made me think of Richard Donner's Superman. Yeah. yeah it made are, me think of that. There are certain moments where it does actually work. Yeah. They're just very few and far very between. Very few. <laughs> but, they, yeah, they, you can tell that they are striving for that tone. Yeah. I mean, there's some other little bits later on where Superman is ill, for example. That kind of feels more like... Richard Donner Superman. It does. On a smaller scale, but yeah, it still feels like they're striving for a slightly more serious tone. Yeah, and I'd say it's actually really upsetting to see him as bad as he is when he's in the barn with the radiation sickness. It does look quite effectively upsetting. Yeah, and it's it's a real shame that actually quite a lot of that sequence is actually on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Because there are quite a few strong sequences that are actually not in the film. Anything to do with his pod with that extra piece of Krypton crystal. And talking to these random floating heads that are not his mother and yeah. not his father, all that stuff's bullshit, though. Oh, they couldn't afford that. Who the them. fuck are they? <laughs> they just <laughs> got some random actors <laughs> yeah. off the street. They were literally just on the street and just decided yeah. to guess, oh, you're old, we can get you in. <laughs> yeah. A tenner for doing this. A bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah, there bottle you go. of wine. <laughs> Two Tesco's finest wines. Uh, they wouldn't have Tesco's finest that then. No, like, true uh, enough. Just Tesco's wine. <laughs> that time they set that up so early on and you know it's going to be the get out of jail free card when the time comes to it yeah they've already cheated their way out of whatever bad thing superman's gonna encounter during the film and it means nothing yeah (laughs) shall we actually begin to talk about the performances yeah yeah because we haven't really got into the performances in superman the quest for spock yeah do we start with christopher reeve i think we have to start with christopher reeve because out of all of them and again there's margot kiddie you got gene hackman jackie cooper as well yeah doesn't deserve to be in this but i think out of all of them i feel the worst for christopher reeve because for some reason or another and i think it's probably because of superman He's not really succeeded as an actor outside of the series Mm. because people identify with him as being Superman so absolutely that there's nowhere for him to go from there. 
And that's how well he managed to capture the character in all of the films. Yeah. Even the worst films, that character shines when he's playing it. Nobody's been able to reach anywhere near that height since. No. Nobody's been able to find a balance between that goody-goody Boy Scout nature of the character and actually make him somewhat endearing as Yeah, well. they, they always seem to emphasise the actual Superman-ness and then they always seem to forget about the Clark Kent-ness. Exactly, yeah. Because his Clark Kent is... There's nothing to compare it against. No. In terms of how good it is and how endearing... Even Brandon Routh, which I would say I really like Brandon Routh's Superman. Mm. It's Clark Kent to nothing. No. It doesn't help that he, they give him no good dialogue or yeah. things to do as Clark Kent. And in Man of Steel, there literally is no difference between Clark Kent and Superman. It doesn't feel like they fixed it either with the new film. It looks like he's just playing the same No, person. it's the same character with glasses on. Yeah, and that's totally not what the character is supposed to be. It's supposed to be that difference between the bungler with the heart of gold yeah. that gets everything wrong and is completely mal-coordinated with this strong, focused Superman. You know what Richard Donner did with Clark Kent and nobody has done since? Had fun. Yeah. Just had fun with the character. Yeah. It's funny to watch him fall over things and stuff like that because we know he's Superman. Yeah. And we know it's an act. Yeah. But it's also funny to see anyway. It works on two levels. It's funny because in this film... Superman for the quest for P. Diddy. Even though a lot of the scenes go nowhere and do yeah. nothing, the, all the Clark Kent scenes, they're still entertaining in their own right. Like, I love the whole farcical scene where he has to keep changing costumes, even though it doesn't really matter for the story at all. Yeah. It's completely self-contained. And also the gym sequence uh, and all the bits in the Daily Planet as well. They're still watchable because of his performance. Yeah. It's not a complete loss because you can tell that he's still trying, he's still being that character. No matter what resources are lacking or anything else that's going on wrong in the particular scene, he's still putting his all in and trying to make it work yeah, yes, with his definitely. performance. Although I'm never quite 100% sure about Christopher Reeve as a person though, because I know that Margot Kidder talks about the experience of making this film was not a happy one. Because they didn't get along at all by this point. Yeah. Not that Mago Kid is a completely reliable source for anything. But yeah, she did seem to think that because he was in charge of the story on this one, he kind of let his ego get the better of him at times with this particular film. And we already know that Christopher Reeves did have something of an ego. Jack O'Halloran speaks about it in many interviews that I've seen him have. Mm. There's this famous story that Christopher Reeve was talking about Jack O'Halloran yeah. behind his back about his mafia connection mm. because Jack O'Halloran's father was actually well-connected within the mob. And yeah. it was well-known. His father had released books about it. And I think Jack O'Halloran had as well. Mm. I think he has since. But he wanted to break away from all that. I don't think he was ever involved and anything like that and always wanted to be an actor yeah but christopher reeve was speaking behind his back and kind of questioning his character and so jack o'halloran actually grabbed him by the throat yeah. and threatened him and said that if he ever found him speaking about him like that again he would kill him <laughs> <laughs> christopher reeve's never spoke about him again no so we do know that there is something of an ego there for Christopher Reeve, but again, nobody is sword the same way he has as that character. No. So maybe it's somewhat warranted, perhaps. But yeah, Marco Kidder, again, we need to talk about Lois Lane as a character yeah. as well and what she brings Margot to Margo Kidder Lane. is obviously released for the month to do yeah. this film. <laughs> well, I suppose the thing that Superman 3 really lacked for me is Lois Lane. Yeah. She didn't want anything to do with it following Superman 2 and Richard Donner's departure from the series. Somehow they managed to get her back for Superman 4, the Owls of Gahul. But Margot Kidder has been the 
only actress that really has done Lois Lane justice. I know that we spoke about Amy Adams being a perfect casting for mm-hmm. it, and it, she is, but she's given nothing to do by the film. I think Margot Kidder is the only time that it's actually the actress and the character have come yeah. together as perfectly as they did. The other thing's worth noting as well, like with those two lead actors in particular, Christopher Reeve doesn't seem to have aged that much no. in the role, considering it was like... 10 years before that he'd actually started in the role. But Marga Kidder, she doesn't seem to have uh, aged well. I'm not sure it's because of some of the problems that she'd had yeah. uh, previous, but um, yeah, she does look quite old in this film. And she looks like she doesn't really want to be there as well, no, to be honest. Because no. uh, I was talking about Margot Kidder being perfectly cast for the role. She really is. But I, I just wonder why she came back for this film. Because yeah. one, it's not deserving for it. And two, I don't think she's willing to give it anything. And I don't think they're asking for anything of it. They just wanted to turn up. She's just in the film. There's no yeah. real reason for her to be there other than that she's playing Lois Lane in this film. There's no story reason why she's there. In fact, they set up that lacy... Warfield as being the new Lois Lane stand-in by having Superman and Clark Kent have this almost like affair. Yeah, she's kind of the third wheel. Mm -hmm. And they try and clumsily shove that storyline back into the forefront again with probably the most pointless scene in the whole film Mm -hmm. with the whole jumping off the ledge and then the whole flying sequence that's ridiculously long and that she's even longer in the the original cut than she goes, I always knew it was you, I haven't forgot anything, even though it completely undermines everything that's happened already in Superman 2. And then he makes her forget anyway. Yeah, so it renders the whole sequence completely pointless. And all it was there to just make... It's a nostalgia thing, isn't it? And it's, it's just like, there oh, to make him um, change his mind about the nuclear weapons angle. Yeah. But it's totally superfluous to the actual film Utterly itself. So. And it's so badly executed anyway mm. that it just looks funny. Meanwhile, the film actually wants us to be rooting for Clark Kent to get with Lacey Warfield. Yeah. So we're supposed to root for Superman to be with Lois Lane. And for Clark Kent to be with Lacey Warfield. And it's like, don't ask us to root for someone to cheat. Yeah. <laughs> you horrible, <laughs> insidious film. Yeah. Talking about Lacey Warfield, actually, I can't believe we've kind of skipped over this, but this film has been edited to fuck. Yeah. And a lot has been taken out. But her inclusion in the film, especially towards the end, how she is included in the action. Oh, yeah. Is so tenuous. Yes. So we've got this character, Nuclear Man, who's essentially the big bad. We've already spoke about how he's been made. Superman gets rid of all the nuclear weapons on Earth. And so Lex Luthor decides to capitalize on that by creating Nuclear Man. And he's going to give the country's reason to buy nuclear weapons again. Yeah. That's the setup. That's Lex Luthor's plan. That's how he's going to get rich. So Nuclear Man just decides that he looks at a paper, yeah, and for some reason, Lacey Warfield, who's taken over the Daily Planet, I don't know why they've printed a face on the front of a newspaper. Is it like she's the new editor or the new owner of When Daily has Planet? that been a fucking headline? When has that been know. the headline of any newspaper? Yep. But he just looks at a newspaper, and then in the next scene... Want woman! Yeah, exactly. And you get the feeling that at least about 20 or 30 minutes has just been cut. There literally is, though, because if you've watched the deleted scenes, there's loads of bits where, like, me, Claire Man, I want fun first... Me sexually assault woman. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. But it's kind of like that, really. One of the characters that we haven't actually approached yet, and we've only spoke about very briefly, and we do actually need to get into now, is Gene Hackman's reprisal of Lex Luthor and his kid nephew, who's played by John Cryer. Of uh, Two and a Half Men fame. (laughs) Yeah. I forgot his name now. Is it Lenny? Lenny. Lenny. Yeah, Lenny. Lenny Luthor. Oh, right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, well, X. <laughs> got like a prototype. Yeah, that was Ted, kind of really, sexual though. Yeah. As well, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, Lex. <laughs> Every time he's on screen, I just want to hurt him. Yeah. 
And I don't know if that's because that's what we're supposed to feel or whether it, I feel it too much. Uh, it takes away my enjoyment because of how much I need to hurt him. There's a bit at the end of the film that I actually wrote down in my notes. There's a bit after everything's happened and um, Lex goes back into his prison garb mm-hmm. and back into prison. But he takes Lenny to a, uh, what's it called, Boys Town? And, oh, he does, and it's run and, by a priest as yeah, well. Yeah, but it's the line that he said that makes it the worst. He's like, um, "Do you reckon you can straighten this kid out?" And then the priest goes, "Every boy can be helped." I just wrote "helped" in inverted commas because <laughs> it's the creepiest thing I've seen. It's true, and it's it's like a prison. It's like yeah, a, these, it's like these a kids go, these boys and, are on the bars, bars just holding like, on to out. save us, Superman. Um, I think this film ends here, and spotlight begins. In the next scene. <laughs> this character, oh my god. He's one of the main remnants of that Superman 3 tone. He yeah. belongs in Superman 3. Well, he's almost like a soul kind holdover, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, he's definitely. part of their comedy, and I think Canon Films have probably looked at the last film and thought, okay, maybe some of that works, let's have a character like that. Just for continuity's sake. Or maybe this is the Canon Films' fucking understanding of the youth of the day. Because let's face it, looking at some of their previous films, they didn't have much of an understanding of the youth of the day. I mean, they understood them as far as that people wanted to see tits. But the the thing that baffles me the most, though, is is why did Gene Hackman agree to be in this film? Money, 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 money. But there was none. Well... I imagine of the money that they had, it was going to the actors. Yeah. Of course it was. Or is it just one of those things where it's because the Salkinds weren't doing it? And it yeah. was kind of like Al being in the canon Superman film. Almost just like, to, a, almost like to, there's a big fuck you to the Sean Salkinds. Sean Connery on Never Say Never Again. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine it'd be more of that kind of thing. Like to the Salkinds, you can get me back for your films, but I'll come back for this film because this is by different people now. I imagine so, but again, it's got to have a money element to it. And when we realise that they cut the budget by the amount that they did, you have to ask, did much of the salaries change? I imagine that the only one out of the lot of them that would be willing to give up any of his salary whatsoever is Christopher Reeves, and yeah. that's because it was his idea. But I can't see Margot Kidder giving up any of her salary. I can't see Gene Hackman giving up any of his. And then when we think about that, if not much of the salary of these actors has changed, then it's all come out of production. Yeah. And it clearly has all come out of production. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd imagine the actual real budget for this film would be like $9 million. Yeah, it's got to be. I mean, you look at... Other films with a similar budget. I mean, Aliens was made for $18 million around the same Mm -hmm. time period. So you can make a film of good quality for 17, 18 million. Of course you can. And to think as well, if we actually say that around about, let's say 10 or 11 at a push million dollars actually went into the production of this film. Only four years later, you've got Terminator 2 being made for over 100 million. Yeah. And that just goes to show how far this series has fallen. Yeah, because I mean, even James Bond films at the time, which you can compare it to in terms of the production values. Yeah. Because there were a lot of the Bond team are on, on the original Superman film. Yeah. Or Superman film without a list. <laughs> their, their budgets around the 80s were leveling off at between 32 to 33 million dollars, something mm-hmm. around that figure. And that was like on the low side because they didn't really adjust the budgets for inflation over that 80s period of James Bond films. And when you compare this film with that, I mean, God, the $36 million budget seemed quite sensible for a film of this type in this period. But yeah, cutting it in half. With so little time to go. That's what they were like, though, because they just thought they could get away with it because that's how they've been making films for so long. I think the other thing we need to mention, I mean, we can probably go into the filmmaking side of this now. Oh, thank Christ. Is... The fact that this is a Sidney J. Fury directed film. Who directed one of the great films that has gone on to, like, even inspire us. Yeah. Into writing as well, which is The Ipcris File. Yeah. 
It's honestly is a fantastic little spy film. And it's so visually inventive. It really is. I don't know what happened. In a way, it's the same thing of um we're talking about Jaws 4, The Revenge. That's directed by Joseph Sargent, who was made take the original taking the Pelham one, two, three, and then as a similar situation on Jaws where they have no pre production time, yeah, a slash budget and ends up with Jaws four. And then we've got basically exactly the same situation with Superman four. Also coincidentally a fourth film in the franchise. Yeah, I just don't know what happened. I mean, Sidney Fury made other decent films as well, and it's just it doesn't seem like he had very much control of anything on this film. Yeah. Like, he was literally just there to shoot what they could literally do yeah, at the time. And I imagine it became something of an experimental film <laughs> <laughs> as he went along. Yeah. Just to see if he could actually end up with a workable film in any way whatsoever. Because yeah. we need to talk about the actual... Um, what was cut from this film. Yeah, because well. it didn't seem like he had any control at the editing process no, either. because so. we are talking about this film as being a really cheap production. But at the same time, they filmed a lot of shit that didn't actually make it into the final film and a lot of action as well. Yeah. I do wonder how much the film that we see, how much it cost because there's so much money that's been just wasted on the side. So even though the budget is like 17 million, I imagine only a fraction of that is actually in the final film. Because there's about 45 minutes of footage that's missing. The original cut of this film is more in line with the other Superman films. It's 134 minutes, whereas the final cut of this film is 90 minutes. Yeah. And uh, and we all know what happens to big films like this, which have a shorter running time. It always (laughs) rings the alarm bells. Yeah, of course it does. Same with Jaws 4. But it's cut in such a strange way where a lot of the fluff has survived... But some of the really like interesting and more important stuff has not. Like there's massive subplots involving the Americans and the Russians and their arm race, which are so much more interesting than what else is going on that's actually in the film. And not that it's all brilliant, it's not great, but it's a damn sight more interesting than what's actually in the film now. Yeah. There's even bits involving um another character that we haven't talked about yet, the character of Jeremy, that make that whole plot line make more sense because mm-hmm. he doesn't disappear from the film entirely, he yeah. just crop up later. And obviously, yeah, that whole section at the end involving nuclear man kidnapping Lacey there's a lot more to that as well well I've seen the deleted scenes but it has been quite a while and I can't remember quite how the stuff with Lacey actually works I mean because like we say in the final film he simply looks at a newspaper sees a face on it and decides oh I want that woman Mm. what is there actually cut in regards to that whole subplot basically there's actually sections where Lacey's actually in Lex's pad there's actually proper scenes where she's actually there with Lex Luthor Lenny and nuclear man and it's almost like there's more of a, a power battle between Lex Luthor and Nuclear Man. Yeah. It's pretty poor, but it still makes that whole section of the film more coherent. But it's more of a power play where you can tell that Luthor's slowly losing his power over Nuclear Man and it's becoming out of hand because Nuclear Man's fixated on having all this fun. Yeah, because that is in he's basically the final version, but very briefly yeah. in the final version. There's only one scene where we actually get an idea that Lex Luthor is losing his grip on Nuclear Man. And, and then it's <laughs> forgotten about completely. And the, the, there's a great comical sequence in the deleted scenes during this section where Nuclear Man replenishes himself by going into a tanning booth. <laughs> <laughs> they built this like tanning booth in the middle of the set and he comes out of it reduced <laughs> and obviously more tanned. But I've got a big long list of all... I mean, this is not even the complete deleted scenes list. I mean, and this goes into another character that we haven't even talked about yet. And this is Nuclear Man Mark 1. 
Because the nuclear man that we see in the film is actually Nuclear Man Mark II, the second attempt. Mm -hmm. The original plan of Nuclear Man was to create him from just normal nuclear material, like plutonium or something like that. And it ultimately fails. Following that, they come across the idea of using the sun. Yeah. Because that's the other thing that doesn't make sense in this film, that Lex Luthor's plans seem to just appear out of thin air like there's no trial and error you just i'm gonna do this i do it it yeah, works and it works yeah whereas in the original cut of the film there is a bit of trial and error so again even though it's not brilliant it still hangs together better so the deleted scenes we've got here where they create nuclear man mark one which is a very goofy looking character apparently looks more like bizarro the character of bizarro yeah created from ordinary radiation and that's played by oh what's his name from casualty clive mantle clive mantle yeah who i imagine is actually probably quite happy that his scenes never made it into the (laughs) film because he probably got paid and it's not harmed his career not being in this film yeah it didn't harm his career and um yeah so they create him he's very goofy looking he's like daddy daddy yeah it's a bit it's like the big dumb giant and he can't fly really like crashes into ceilings and stuff like that and there's a big fight between him and superman in the street and they crush a load of cars which would have been quite expensive in yeah, because that's what I was thinking budget. of. It's outside the cinema, isn't it? It's outside a nightclub, yeah. Oh, outside a nightclub. And he's basically electrocuted to death, and there's a nice little scene where they hoover up his ashes, <laughs> and he's sort of cradling the dustbuster. Yeah. <laughs> my boy, my boy. It's a nice little Lex Luthor moment, actually. There's very few moments where the Gene Hackman Lex Luthor character really gets a chance to really be wacky, because there's, there's no fucking time in the film with him. And um, there's a really hilarious bit in the Nuclear Man, Superman fight, where Nuclear Man creates a tornado around a farm in that nuclear man superman battles and there's loads of little random set pieces like the volcano sequence yeah in a way they're kind of throwbacks to like the leaning tower of pisa scene in superman 3 yeah um, and richard lester stuff no no that's superman 2 isn't it no that's three the leaning tower of pisa oh of course it is no yeah because that's yeah because that's what bad superman does he makes the leaning yeah, tower he, of pisa straight. straight yeah <laughs> the similar scenes in this one where there's a volcano in Italy or wherever it's meant to be and he he cuts the whole top off a mountain and sticks it in the volcano (laughs) and then there's and obviously there's the infamous Great Wall of China scene where he basically has this special power that rebuilds the Great Wall of China which isn't filmed in China it's like the Great Wall of Peckham or something like that it's also like it's, it's notable for the fact there's no Chinese people in that shot. No, there isn't whatsoever. No. <laughs> also, Superman has this newfound ability to just look at things and they rebuild. Well, apparently they were originally going to have it where they used his super speed to rebuild. But they it, couldn't do that because it would have cost too much money. So yeah. they just came up with this thing of all just literally reversing the footage. Yeah, he looks at it and it reverses. But there's a whole massive subplot where Lex Luthor is in Russia and negotiating with the Russians over arms and he gets arrested and he basically talks himself out of it and he basically persuades in Superman's absence and this is when he's ill, when he gets scratched. There's a massive subplot between him and Nuclear Man. They manage to basically rearm the whole world again. Yeah. And Superman has failed, basically, because he's dying. And there's a whole subplot where he's playing the Americans and the Russians are going stuff each other. I mean, again, not that it's particularly brilliant, but it, it makes that whole mm-hmm. part of the story more coherent. And there's more footage of Clark dying, and it's actually quite poignant. Yeah, because it just seems between two scenes at the moment. And again, there's this more stuff at the end to tie back in with Jeremy, who just gets completely lost by the end of the film. So even though if it was at its original length, it wouldn't be 
a great film. It would still be a pretty poor film. Well, that's it. It would I, still hang together better. I mean, I think I described it at one point as being the version that's out there is like a jigsaw that you only have half the pieces for, and it's been put together in that way. Mm. But even if you add all the pieces, it still only makes a picture of a piece of dog shit. Yeah. Even if the pieces fit together, it just it, it isn't worth your time. I think the most hilarious thing I, I learned about this re-edit, because it tested poorly, and they decided to cut all this stuff out. They thought they had a blockbuster on their hands, a potential blockbuster, so they decided to make it 90 minutes so they could get more showings, as does happen now. But the really funny thing was that they thought that the footage that they excised, this 45 minutes, they could reuse for a potential (laughs) Superman 5, that they could recycle this footage to be another film entirely. And that That sums them up exactly. Yeah, it just really goes. It gives a great picture of how Canon films operated. Yeah, I think one last thing that I really have to mention about this film in terms of the filmmaking is that one of the very, very, very few things that it actually does okay is the music. Well, that's the interesting thing because in the credits when they roll up, and we haven't even talked about how awful the credits look in this film. Oh, the god awful! Looks like they're fucking off top of the pops or something in the seventies. But it actually says music by John Williams, and then the uh, music was adapted and conducted by another guy. I can't remember yeah. the name of the guy. But I think what's happened is all they've done is gone into the copywriters, got a load of John Williams' score from the other film, and literally just re-recorded it. Yeah. And just moved it slightly in different places. So I don't I think there's so. really any new music in this film. It's just rehashed cues from the earlier films yeah. that they've just licensed. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, wouldn't, so wouldn't even surprise me that some of the recordings are the original recordings from the, the yeah. first two. Well, that's films. the thing; it doesn't actually fit what's on the screen most of the time. No, but it's um, actually the only thing in the film that's actually okay. It's like they've temp tracked the film from the old music. That's basically that's what they've yeah, done. Yeah, that's essentially what's happened. The only last interesting thing of note, because we could go on forever about how poor some of the special effects are, in and they film. are. I mean, there's there's so many shots of like people on strings. The best one is when there's a fight in the street, which is the only outside New York set that even looks vaguely like New York. Yeah. where he makes a bunch of businessmen fly in the air and um, you can clearly see they're on wires because it makes no attempt to hide the fact because they're in broad daylight. Yeah. But the, in the actual flying shots themselves, which all look shit, there's no decent flying shots in this film apart from maybe some of the ones in space. But there's an infamous flying shot where it's literally a shot of Superman head-on flying towards the camera. And he looks angry as well. Yeah, but they use it in every single conceivable situation and continue reusing it they didn't bother to get any variations of this shot. It's just the same optical, isn't it? Yeah, like literally they use it for everything. They use it when he's in the tube, which we haven't talked about that. It's actually, yeah. there's a New York subway scene, that is, which is the London Underground. It's the London Underground. And it's they definitely make is. very little attempt to cover up this fact. Yeah. I mean, everybody in the film looks English. You can tell they're English. Yeah. Bad teeth and all. <laughs> this flying shot, I actually made a little tally whilst I was watching the film to see how many times they reused the shot. I mean, if someone else watches it, they may prove me wrong if I've miscounted, but they use the shot a total of 10 times <laughs> in the film. Literally exactly the same shot yeah. in different situations. And uh, to be honest, you could probably invent a drinking game around this. How yeah. many times you see that shot, you have to drink a pint or something like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it is just hilarious how incompetent some of the effects and the way that they're integrated. It's difficult to really gauge who was calling the shots on that in terms of who was allowed to do what and whether it was just a bad effects company or probably more of an inexperienced effects company that was doing it. Yeah. So now that we've talked about Superman 4, the quickening as much as we can, now it's that time of the podcast where we try to figure out just why a film has been forgotten. Did it soar like a bird or crash like a plane? It's time for us to turn to the stats and facts. 
First, what did the critics think of Superman 4? Well, the Rotten Tomatoes score is at a stunningly high 12%. Wow, that is um, high. <laughs> which I genuinely is <laughs> like about 11% too high. The average rating is 2.9 out of 10, and this is after 41 reviews. And of the audience, 16% liked it, but it has an average rating of 2.4 out of 5. So it's almost like 5 out of 10, which is ridiculously <laughs> high for the film that yeah. this is. The critics' consensus says, The Superman series bottoms out here. The action is boring, the special effects look cheaper, and none of the actors appear interested in where the plot's going. I think that's right. I think the only person that actually gives a shit about where the story's going is Christopher Reeves. Yeah. Everybody else deserves better. His career depends on it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it says a lot, really, that the films that he went on to be in were like, The Village of the Damned was one of them, the John Carpenter remake, which is one of John Carpenter's lesser films. But perhaps it's... um, not as bad as people remember. I'd like to revisit The Village of the Damned, actually. Yeah, the only film of note I can think of that he was in, but more in a supporting role, was um, Remains of the Day. Oh, of course, yeah. That he's in, which is 1993. I do remember a TV movie he was in, in which he played a man who was paralysed from the waist down yeah. in an accident. And he finds out that his wife's sleeping with somebody else having an affair. And what he does is, nobody else knows but him that he's actually improving from his injury. Yeah. He shoots his wife. But when the detectives at the scene of the crime, they figure that his wife's been shot by somebody who was stood up and it couldn't have possibly been the husband. Oh, wow. Because he's in a wheelchair. It was Christopher Reeves playing something that he had never played before, which was a character that had a dark side. Mm. And I guess that was him going completely against type, completely against that Superman persona that he was known for. And he mm. really struggled to break out from that. Much the same way that Mark Hamill really struggled to be anybody other than Luke Skywalker beyond yeah. the Star Wars series. And it's interesting as well that uh, John Cryer tells the story of once they'd finished and just before it was meant to be released, Christopher Reeves took John Cryer out for lunch to basically let him know that the film was a mess and that it was going to be shit. And uh, yeah, you kind of really feel for them there because it's like just to realise that the thing you've made and the thing you spent months on is not going to turn out so well or be a complete disaster, which ended up being. So yeah, his whole career was on the line for this and it really hurt his career. And he says in his autobiography that it really harmed the rest of his career. Yeah, it did. As an actor. Well, moving on to the reviews. I don't have one from Roger Ebert this week. I couldn't find one. Instead, I have one from Empire, who gave the film one out of five stars. And that's (laughs) William Thomas, a uh, critic I've never actually heard of. He said, from Police Academy 4 to Batman and Robin, there is an unwritten law in Hollywood that the fourth installment of any franchise must be awful. As if all the last dregs of creative energy to make a third movie have been used up and there is nothing left in the barrel. This rule applies to A Quest for Peace, a dreadful end to the mostly majestic Superman series of the 70s and 80s that takes everything you hold sacred about the Man of Steel and flushes it down the toilet. It's hard to disagree with anything that he's saying. I would say that perhaps that it's weird to look at that Superman series and say it's sacred Mm. because I think it's only one film that's truly sacred out of a lot of them. And um, the last little factoid I have is that on IMDb, Superman is rated 3.7 out of 10. (laughs) That's Superman 4, The Quick and The Dead. (laughs) Okay, so now that we've done with the critics, and I don't think it's hard to agree with anything of what they're saying, it's absolutely on the money. No, yeah. Um, It's time for us to move over to the box office and just how much money did this film make? Perhaps it was something of a box office success for (laughs) Canon Films. They were certainly hoping for it. Yeah. So this film was made for a total budget of 17 million dollars and that's down from the budget of 32 36 oh 36, 36 they were originally yeah. promised so total lifetime grosses domestic was just over 
fifteen and a half million dollars. E gods. It made just over five and a half million dollars in its opening weekend, and it opened in fourth place, rather appropriately for Superman Four. And its worldwide overall gross was $36.7 million, which is ironic, seeing as that's pretty much the original budget. <laughs> <laughs> they got what they deserved. Yeah. yeah, let's just have a look at the, some of the films that it actually opened up against. So, at number one that week, we have Robocop. Awesome. Wow, how many weeks had that been out? Second week. Second, Second week, week. Yeah, not number one. Number Fantastic. One, yeah. And then we have... Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in a 1987 reissue. And that's cool. also in its second week at number two. We have Summer School, which I have no idea what that is. That's probably nope. a rather weak Paramount comedy in its first week at number three. Superman 4 at uh, number four. Yep. La Bamba okay. at number one. Jaws 4, The Revenge at number Fantastic. six in its second week. Full Metal Jacket at number seven in its fifth week. Uh, Dragnet, oh, Dragnet at number eight. Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise. Oh, while we're actually on the subject of Revenge of the Nerds, I watched a great takedown of the first Revenge of the Nerds film from a um, friend of mine that posts on another forum. It's called Soul for Justice Warriors. (laughs) I would recommend anybody to seek it out. It's a really good takedown of that film and explains why it didn't work. Yeah. Even though it's held as being a cult classic now. Yeah. And then last at number 10, it's Adventures in Babysitting in its fourth week. A real um, mixed bag of films there. It's a truly mixed bag of films. You've got... Just held together by the holy grail at the top that is Robocop. And Full Metal Jacket. Oh, of course, Full Metal Jacket, yeah. (laughs) I love how you've got Full Metal Jacket directly underneath Jaws 4. It's... (laughs) That was just brilliant. You know what? Even though Full Metal Jacket's in, like, its fifth week... Yeah. That feels like an injustice that it was ever below Jaws Jaws 4. 4, yeah. No matter what week Jaws was in. I mean, just looking at the overall box office figures even when you adjust it for inflation superman 4 is at the bottom of the pile in both lists in terms of all the sort of six superman films that have been made yeah and it's even more apparent that when you adjust for inflation the the highest grossing superman film is the first superman film followed by superman 2 then all the rest follow with superman 4 at the bottom so and even adjusted for inflation it only made 34 million (laughs) When you look at like the adjusted domestic gross of Superman the movie, it's almost five hundred million. Yeah, it says everything right yeah. there. So uh, how quickly they fall? Yeah, not a pretty picture, and uh, I don't think anyone really came out of this uh, unscathed, really. Yeah, probably apart from Gene Hatman. <laughs> well, the only thing left for me to do is ask the two questions that I ask at the end of every Best Forgotten Movies episode. So, are we any closer to understanding why Superman for a question of sport has been forgotten? I think we do know why it's been forgotten, and it's a combination of things that really came down on this film. Most of them can be attributed to Canon Films and their way of filmmaking. They like to make films cheaply, they like to rush through them, they'll save a buck wherever they can, and they'll push any old tosh out there. Yeah. It doesn't matter because in a couple of weeks' time they're going to be working on another film. Yeah. And at this point in their history, they were going through financial difficulties, so you start to understand how this House of Cards fell down. But do I blame Canon Film? No, they just made films like they continue to make films. The Sulkins always take the blame because it is with them that the series began to falter. I think the other thing is that it's just Superman as a film property just didn't fit the Canon mold. No. Just didn't fit in with their way of making films. No, because even when we look at the type of films that they made and it's like schlocky action films or skin flicks... You know, like Emmanuel in space. I don't actually know if that's one of theirs. Probably is. But it probably is, yeah. They started off making smutty skin flicks. They went on to make exploitation films. And then they ended up making a lot of um, 
cheap action films with Charles Bronson and Chuck Norris at the end of their careers. That said, the stuff that they made has gone on to be very influential in terms of when we look at action films now and we look at Olympus Has Fallen and and its like, Mm. we can see just what an influence Canon Films has had on people working today. Yeah. So Superman was never destined to fit that mould. Because it sticks out like a sore thumb. Even more so than, say, Mass of the Universe, like, which yeah. is another one of the same year as well. But Mass of the, of the Universe almost kind of fits in that mould because it's got that... Um, it is more schlocky. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's more schlocky and it's got one of those 80s action heroes at its centre mm. in Dolph Lundgren. I just think it ultimately was just the wrong fit for Canon's way of making films. And mm-hmm. that's ultimately why everything fell apart. Yeah, I have to agree. I really do. And finally... Is Superman 4, The Cone of Shame, one of the best forgotten movies, or is should it simply remain best forgotten? Well, I think Superman 4, The Question of Pedophiles... <laughs> um, that really, should be the sequel. Oh, yeah, that, that is the sequel. <laughs> and um, that just should remain forgotten, and I think that's really what people have tried the hardest to do anyway, is just make people forget about this film. It's probably very begrudgingly in the box set, yeah. just to give you a complete picture of what it is, but it's really definitely the black sheep of the Christopher Reeve Salkind Superman series. It is. Even compared to Superman 3, which is a disaster in itself, but this is a real oddity in the series. Yeah. It is the Jaws 4 or even Jaws 3D of the <laughs> Superman series. You know, that's the thing. Although I do agree that Superman 4 is a worse film, I still would rather watch it to Superman 3 yeah because uh, Superman 3 just does nothing for me we're with the same opinion of Jaws 3 yeah exactly Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just remarkably dull and that's it it's, it's like Jaws 3D and Jaws The Revenge both The Quest for Peace and Jaws The Revenge are worse films than what they're following but they're a lot more enjoyable Whereas Superman 3 is just not. Yeah. Although with Jaws 3, I would have to argue that probably Jaws 3 is technically actually probably worse than yeah, Jaws that's, 4. Yeah, th- that's the thing with Jaws 3, isn't it? You've got that 3D element that just looks god-awful. The d- awful, awful opticals. Whereas you could actually say that Jaws 4 is something of an improvement in terms of special effects. Not much, but... No, but bit. it is. <laughs> yeah. And, and that says a lot, considering how bad that film is. Yeah. But yeah, Superman 4, it has to be best forgotten. I enjoy elements of it in an ironic way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I hate to say that, but you're not going to miss anything by skipping it. But if you like so bad the good films, you'll find something to enjoy here. Yeah. But yeah, it should remain um, best forgotten in the annals of superhero movie history. Definitely. And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. So please do get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fanbase, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. I'd also like to thank the excellent folks at followthenerd.com for featuring our podcast on their website. In our next episode, we're watching Julie Christie turn down the sexual advances of her own house in Demon Seed. Yes, you heard that right. But until then, it's goodbye from myself and adios from Andy. Uh, Adios. (laughs) Thanks for listening. (laughs) 